0: Welcome to the On the Verge of podcast, where we explore the world of politics and policy and focus on how tech companies can navigate the politics of disruption. Hello, and welcome back to the On the Verge of podcast. I'm Kate Fogarty, and I'm joined by Scott Gerber, who is a partner and founder of Verge Strategies. We've taken a brief hiatus, but we're excited to kick things off in 2023 with an impressive guest, Colleen Quinn, one of the foremost leaders in building out an EV charging infrastructure across the nation. Scott, tell us a little bit about your conversation.
1: Well, I've known Colleen for nearly a decade. We worked together when she was at ChargePoint, which is the leader in EV charging in the US and around the world. She's really a visionary when it comes to shaping the policy and funding uh, environment for for EV charging and infrastructure. She's a lot of fun. Um, and underneath it, she's one tough cookie. Uh, uh, I love Colleen. It's a really fascinating conversation. And I hope that people enjoy it. So. Uh, take a listen.
0: Yeah, let's get to it. Here's our conversation with Scott Gerber and Colleen Quinn. We hope you enjoy it. And if you do, please smash that subscribe button.
1: Our nation and the world is in the midst of the single largest revolution in mobility since the advent of the internal combustion engine. And this is being driven by the adoption of electric vehicles. But this revolution wouldn't be possible without a robust EV charging infrastructure to power vehicles and give drivers confidence. I'm so pleased to have here with us today Colleen Quinn, who I say with only a tiny bit of exaggeration is the godmother of EV charging in the United States. Colleen leads the National EV Charging Initiative. She's the founder and president of E Mobility Advisors, We met when she managed policy at the nation's leading EV charging company, ChargePoint. And through it all, Colleen has been instrumental in shaping the public policy and funding environment in support of a robust national EV charging infrastructure. And I'm proud to call her a friend. So Colleen, welcome to the pod.
2: Thank you, Scott. And it is great to be with you today. Hey, I'm not sure I'd put myself in religious terms, as a godmother, but, you know, I do consider myself a pioneer in the EV charging industry. Well,
1: that's certainly true. Um, So today we just want to take a moment uh, to run through where we are when it comes to EVs and EV charging. Um, So why don't we start here? Um, I think today we take it for granted that EVs are going to be the dominant mode of personal transportation in the world. Uh, Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but certainly in less than a generation. But when we started working together on this back in uh, 2014 and 2015, it wasn't so clear and it wasn't so um, demonstrated that this was meant to be. So take us back to that time and give people a sense of what the environment for EVs and EV charging was like back then.
2: Well, thanks, Scott. This is something I love to think about. Um, It's it's important to have, and I'm lucky to have the ability to share this looking back perspective. So I'm really um, thrilled with this question. And so I'm going to address it uh, looking back to 2015. And I am going to share a couple of lessons that that I've learned. And I think, frankly, the industry has learned. First off, by starting to say that in 2015, there was a level of uncertainty about mobility not seen since the widespread adoption of the automobile this was reflected both in external policy environment as well as the business environment my first lesson in 2015 was in 2015 policy leadership mattered governors more than presidents so as you know company ChargePoint was headquartered in California, and it was always and was ground zero for EV adoption. And that was certainly true in 2015. Governor Jerry Brown was governor. He was the unquestioned leader in promoting EVs, both in um, the U.S. and frankly, later on the global stage. Representing a Silicon Valley-based company, one of my One of my jobs, and I think one of the things we did successfully was to work closely and collaborate with the government in California and officials to support the growth of the market. During that time, and you were part of this, we sponsored legislation. We worked to streamline permitting, we advanced building codes, and then eventually we took that game plan to other states. Unlike You know, most companies that just, especially in tech, that just wanted government to leave them alone, we learned very early on that this is a government-regulated market. So we participated in the process, and we communicated needs not only of the industry, but also of customers in order to promote the growth of the market. On the national stage in 2015, the policy roadmap was complicated. There was little collaboration or co- coordination. I remember being in Washington in a hearing in 2015 when Nissan testified and provided an, what I call an aha moment to Congress about how things had changed when they launched the Nissan LEAF in the U.S. They never had to le- deal with a public utility commission to deliver a vehicle. There was no organized voice for the EV charging industry. During that year, we created, along with um, NRG, which is now EVGo, the first association called the EV Charging Association. We group that in, we started in California, and now the group is active in multiple states. During those years, we were also fighting to enable a competitive EV charging industry through policy and regulatory outcomes. So the lesson that I learned then was that business models matter, but they have to fight for success. In California and elsewhere, it was a David and Goliath struggle. You were part of that campaign, Scott, and it provided some key lessons. One. Vested industries will not lay out a welcome mat for new entrants. Two, regulators really are looking for sustainable business models, and the role of private investment is critical to long-term viability. So 2015 was a very uncertain time. We were not coordinated. Uh, There was very little collaboration. And frankly, we were fighting to really create a competitive market.
1: So things have changed since then uh, in major ways. Um, More EVs have come to the market, more players in the EV charging space, and really the Issue has moved from the state level to the national level as well. President Biden in the campaign set a goal of having 500,000 EV chargers along the nation's roads and highways. Uh, He put $7.5 billion towards this goal in the bipartisan infrastructure law. So tell us from your perspective how this has changed things and what all this federal funding now means for the deployment of chargers across the country.
2: Well, you're right. Now the president does matter um, because the real game changer was the 2020 election. The you know we had the Senate go Democratic. The president campaigned on a commitment to deploy 500,000 charging stations. I think very importantly, he made capable appointments in the administration to put some muscle in Washington D.C., and that really created some momentum for collaboration. And you mentioned, and and it was really the backdrop for uh, the creation of the National EV Charging Initiative. So for the first time, we have the convergence of strong government leadership, rapidly maturing technology, and the growing private sector. For the first time in our country, government is leading and setting a new market pace for electric vehicles. Importantly, the president and the administration view the importance of the private sector as critical to leverage their message, to work together with industry, to set this new pace. So one thing that's happened um, since those early days is that money has really come off the sidelines. So industry, has, in addition to the, you know, obviously the 75 billion that the Biden administration was successful and the IIJA is going to provide for us. The industry has seen more than $4.8 billion in rollout announcements in investments, debt financing, and acquisitions in the EV charging industry. Um, the auto industry is also investing, not just in cars, but also in charging. GM alone is investing $750 million to expand home, workplace, and public charging. And the this the administration's intention to drive this network and leverage private capital is really important. Another thing that's that's been uh, that's happened is that we've seen announcement of manufacturing brought to the U.S. Tritium um, and as well as others made ambitious commitments to deploy uh, for deployment in the U.S. to take advantage of the seven point um, seven billion dollars. And frankly, the goal of the National EV charging initiative is to raise that number 10 times by the private sector.
1: Great. So let's let's double-click. So you're a state, you want to access these funds. Uh, map out how the process for what a state needs to do, uh what the regulatory structure looks like, and then how does that lead to like a DC fast charger? Not a stop along the interstate. Map, map out that process.
2: Okay. The first thing, the most important thing, in my view, was that the federal government set strong, clear targets for where we need to go as a country. They said they provided guidelines to these states, uh, enabling the states to write plans, uh, spend the money, but first they had to have a plan that met these guidelines. Second point. For the first time, we have standards in equipment, and the purpose of those standards is to enable affordable, accessible, and reliable charging infrastructure. One of the challenges that I think the the, the administration saw was that people cannot de- depend on um, their charging station. Uh, the, I remember, you know, it's worse to the rather than not have. It's worse to not. It's worse to have a charging station that doesn't work than to not have it at all. So right away they set this these expectations on standards. You can't get the federal money if you don't if you don't address the standards. Um, so every fifty miles we're going to see a DC fast charger, uh, which, which has to be within one mile off the freeway. The companies must commit to 97% uptime. That's huge. You can't have faulty chargers. And they must have high-capacity, fast-charging available at these stops. And for the first time, Scott, I think this is important. We have two agencies that are collaborating to support this deployment. The creation of this joint energy Uh, the office of joint energy and transportation is really historic in itself because they finally recognize that there are two diverse industries that have to come together, the utility or energy industry and the transportation industry. So this joint office is supporting the state plans. They're providing expertise and advice.
1: So going back a little bit, you know, Back in the day, we fought some major battles. Who would own the infrastructure? What was the relationship between utilities and the and the EVSEs? And then um, mixed into that was the Volkswagen Diesel Gate settlement. So that's where we were. Where? What are the big policy issues out there today?
2: So overall, I would say that we have broad alignment on policy. So ninety percent. Of the utility programs provide for a win-win solution for on the role of the utility. The big issue that needs to be addressed, frankly, is how to achieve scale. With the opportunity of the medium and heavy duty vehicles coming into the market with new regulations that now California has put on the books that's going to demand, um, you know, demand that the vehicles uh, you know, are electric. The freight vehicles are electric. Um, the Their challenges really are on getting the scale. The utilities are still what I call flying blind on the large scale fleets and deployments. Um, cars right now are being treated like buildings by regulators. So frankly, there has to be, and there already is starting to be, a series of data collection on what the grid requirements are going to be for this, for these, you know, heavy duty vehicles. Um, And at the National EV Charging Initiative, we are, we are working on what we're calling the Energize Agenda. Uh, We brought together at at a recent uh, fourth summit uh, in May, a group of uh, the the folks from the, OEM truck industry, as well as utilities. Um, And so we're going to expand our coalition around the solutions and model legislation that's going to be needed to actually address this scale problem. We need to address getting deployment faster, and we need to We need, as I said, we need to address these grid challenges. We need to go beyond just where the load is and understand what the nature of the goods, the timelines needed. You know, in utility speak, it's the feeders, um, and it's a lot of very heavy duty equipment that has to be put in place so that these vehicles can effectively and efficiently travel the roads in this country. So we are looking at, you know, the new. The new need, it's going to be a new paradigm for regulatory oversight, what it looks like today, and we need to design and redesign these processes to achieve scale.
1: All right, let's talk about um, one of the other challenges, which is uh, making sure that EV charging is accessible and equitable in underserved communities, especially for those who may live in apartment buildings as opposed to single-family homes. How do we address this challenge, uh, which is critically important?
2: You know, um, part of our mission at the Nationally Recharging initiative was to uh, is to talk about this challenge. First of all, business as usual, is insufficient to get us where we need to go. And it is time and for these new voices to be a part of this debate and frankly, part of the solution. And we have to think about more inclusive solutions, more pragmatic approaches that will address the needs of these communities. Um, and we have to we have to remediate these historic inequities. And I think you know one of the things that's happening, if you look at the funding that the Biden administration has put on the street, especially for the something called the commute. Uh, uh, charging and fueling infrastructure, which is coming out of FHWA, which is $2.5 billion. This money is directed to uh, fill the gaps for these communities. And the priority is really in, in really creating the, that outreach and community engagement process to bring these communities together to help understand what it is um, that they, are, you know, what their needs are and how this new system needs to essentially provide them the accessible, reliable, affordable charging infrastructure so that they can adopt electric vehicles.
1: So step back for just a second. Um, as we look to the future, what else can uh, U.S., whether at the federal level or the state level, uh, be doing to accelerate the deployment of EV chargers today, and then into the future tomorrow.
2: So, as I mentioned, you know, there's there's significant challenges. Um, the I mentioned that this infrastructure, you know, well, first of all, my my first advice is we can't screw this up. <laughs> this money has got to be uh, effectively deployed. Uh, We have to make sure that we can assure that these consumers, the drivers, you know, are going to be able to access the network as they need it and meet their driving needs. Um, And frankly, I think there's it's time to come together with more investments. Um, We need to bring more financing into the market. We need to leverage what we've done already, but we still have to unlock the private uh, public and private capital. And I think, you know, we have to get to the how. In other words, we I think we know the what and the why. And so I think part of the challenge in front of us is the how. Um, So I think the we, you know, look, we know for a fact that way back, you know, everybody was pointing the finger at the auto industry, saying they were the ones that were, you know, they were stalling on putting in the infrastructure. Um, And now that's changed. Um, Mass electrification needs, we need new distributed fueling models, we need to rethink the way we fuel the transportation sector. So, as I said, we need to get back to, I think, thinking about more funding, more financing mechanisms that help risk, hedge the risk to investments and help inform state and local governments on utilization uh, usage patterns um, that will be key to, to success.
1: Well, I'm an EV driver myself, uh, so I, I'm hoping all of that happens very quickly. Though I will note uh, most of the charging that I do is at home, and I think that's true for a lot of people um, but clearly the, um, the public infrastructure is so, so important as we provide more uh, confidence to drivers as they, you know, as they both drive around town and then they drive between cities as well. So switching gears just a little bit, um, every episode we share our musts. So what should people be reading or watching or listening to? what should be people be paying attention to? So whether it's in the EV charging space or elsewhere. So what are your musts, Colleen?
2: Well, you know, unfortunately I think um, we still are not mainstream in the media. Um, There, you know, that's something that you, you Scott and and your team are, have certainly have escalated a lot of this discussion and this debate, but people still do not understand, for example, that this money is coming their way. They don't understand, you know, what this what this national deployment will look like. Um, so we really do need to do more to bring um, EVs into the mainstream discussion. And so that everyone will realize that this is happening and this is an opportunity for them and they shouldn't resist it. You know, honestly, I spend a lot of my time now listening to CNBC um, because, frankly, they are finally bringing EVs, you know, into their discussion. Uh, Elon Musk, you know, I, I listen to um, his um, shareholder uh, reports and meetings. Uh, I keep myself informed. I'm on, you know, obviously I, I'm on all the newsletters. I also... I also keep up with what's happening in the utility industry. Um, And, you know, even so, for example, what, last week, late last week, you know, Ford announced that they were now going to be using uh, the Tesla charging infrastructure. Um, This is like, whoa, this is a big deal. Um, So a lot, a lot is still happening. A lot is still evolving in the industry. And um, the way I keep up with it is I put my hands on a lot of, you know, Axios. I mean, I, I read everything that comes out, but it's, but it's hard to really put your finger on any mainstream outlet that is just dedicated, you know, to promoting, um, you know, this future as we, you know, as we hope it's going to be.
1: Well, that's that's a, an important niche to fill. And um, sadly, that's all the time we have for you today. Colleen, we're so glad you were able to come on the On the Verge of podcast. Uh, we appreciate uh, your friend, friendship. We appreciate your perspective. And we appreciate the fact that you were able to make time today. So thank you so much.
2: Thank you. And I appreciate everything you've done too, Scott. Thank you so much.
0: So Kate, what'd you think? That was fascinating. Um, Colleen is making me feel more optimistic about the future, even though there's obviously a lot of work to do. Um, But I really liked what she was saying, especially about the needing to make inclusivity part of the solution. Um, What did you think, Scott?
1: Well, I think there's nobody who's more focused on the funding questions and the policy questions um, in the US today. So I think when it comes to um, how to deploy for um, underserved communities, really important. The questions about medium duty and heavy duty are critically important. And then how states will access funding and actually you know, deliver DC fast charging and interstate corridors. Absolutely critical um, if we're going to take EVs from five percent penetration to thirty percent penetration, um, which is really the projection over the next ten years. So uh, I thought it was great, but more importantly, we got to get to our musts. This is uh, this is what we do every episode. So from your perspective, Kate, what should people be watching, listening, reading?
0: Yeah. I think we're going to have at least one answer the same, so I'll let you take that one. Uh, But two of my must-watches are um, sad series finales for both Ted Lasso um, and Barry. I don't know if anybody has been watching Barry, but Barry has been one of my favorite shows um, that's been wildly unpredictable, uh, but amazing. So I think Ted Lasso still has one more episode, um, or maybe it's over and maybe I'm behind. (laughs) (laughs)
1: you're behind it dropped last night at 12 Ah. a.m. And I watched it and uh, uh, I will, I will give you the spoiler Uh, disappointing, but Barry was awesome. And then we'll we'll talk about succession Uh, maybe the best finale ever, but we'll talk about that.
0: Yeah. Um, My must listen to is uh, a new podcast that I've been enjoying has not nothing to do with tech Nothing to do with EVs, but it's called Against the Odds with, uh, from Wondery. Um, it's just crazy stories of human survival against, against all odds. Um, there are stories of people uh, surviving, being dropped in uh, crazy scenarios from being dropped into volcanoes um, and surviving avalanches. So it's a pretty incredible uh, storytelling podcast where people are looking to get their heart rates up.
1: Does, does it have Phil Collins as the
0: soundtrack too? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't, that's a good suggestion. I'll, I'll yeah. write it in. Good. What are your uh, must-reads, watch, listens to, Scott?
1: Well, I mean, the succession finale, obviously, the most important thing, other than the debt ceiling that everybody should be watching right now. <laughs> uh, candidly, I don't know that I was the biggest fan of the series, but I think in terms of um, – Uh, sticking the landing, uh, they did an amazing job Uh, by having it uh, be a limited series and not going on forever and forever. They got to sort of bring it to a point. And um, I really thought it was amazing. And uh, my mind was blown. Even though though the ending landed where I thought it was, how it got there was totally unpredictable. Um, So if you haven't watched it, watch it. And if you've watched it once, watch it again. Uh, And then the second thing that people should be reading is, um, really, I'd go back to a Wired story from earlier in this year, um, back in May, title of which is Pete Buttigieg Loves His God, Beer, and His Electric Mustang. So apropos for today's conversation, got to say, I love Pete. I think he has incredible promise for the future. Um, I don't know that he appeared as compelling in this story, probably because it's a wired uh, magazine story that's really um uh connected to um sort of elite tech people and and the people that love them. Um I'd rather see him in people magazine and and uh more consumer places because I think this may have, you know, brought out um a little of the um technocrat in him. And I want to see, you know the real person in him. So we'll see.
0: I'm sure we'll hear more from him uh, in the coming months and and years. So. Yes, we will. All right. I think that's all we got for this week's episode. Everybody stay tuned for um, our next, our next on the verge of podcast with an exciting guest TBD.
1: Yep. And as Kate says, smash that subscribe button. Thanks all.